here. I'm Jenny Eaton-Dyer. Um, I'm the Executive Director of Hope Through Healing Hands, which is a small global health organization in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, its chair and founder is Senator uh, and Dr. Bill Frist, um, who was the former U.S. Majority Leader. I have been the Executive Director for about six years now, maybe seven years. And um, we've recently moved into working um, and focusing on the issue of maternal and child health, the spectrum of issues with maternal and child health, but specifically on healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies, which is what we're going to talk about today kind of within that spectrum. So um, let me start with a little bit about Hope Through Healing Hands. Hope Through Healing Hands is Nashville-based, and I've mentioned that. Our mission is an improved quality of life for citizens and communities around the world using health as a currency for peace. And health as a currency for peace is um, Senator Frist's kind of mantra around health diplomacy, kind of bridging his work in the medical field, um, where he started out doing medical missions over um, 20-plus years ago um, and then moving into politics um, where he was um, our, the, our Tennessee senator um, for two different terms. Um, he is the founder and chair. So our flagship program is the Frisk Global Health Leaders Program. It is a medical missions program. We send um, medical students, nursing students, and public health students all around the world to serve in underserved clinics. Um, they're in Central America, South America, Africa, Asia, um, and they're from a variety of schools across the state of Tennessee and beyond. Um, and we send them out every year, kind of in the footsteps of Senator for us, giving them a taste of medical missions in the hope that they will commit their careers to global health and become strong advocates for global health issues. For the last decade, um, I have been working on issues of global health, um, largely around HIV, AIDS, and Africa and extreme poverty. I was the faith outreach director for the Data Foundation, uh, which became the One Campaign, which was Bono's organization. And we worked with faith leaders across the country, uh, galvanizing interest on HIV, really to get um, grassroots movement under the Bush administration uh, for legislation, strong legislation, robust legislation for AIDS um, in Africa to stop the pandemic. And to do that, we had um, some key strategies of advocacy. Um, and, and here were some of the um, criteria for that. We had to have the presidential leadership, which we had with President Bush and his um, executive leadership, to take that step out and commit that $15 billion at the State of the Union address um, in 2003 for um, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Um, and, and he did that, though, on the back of middle America kind of standing up and saying, yes, we do want to help. We do want our tax dollars to go there. Um, and we do want to um, take up this issue around HIV. And it was a historic initiative. It's perhaps President Bush's legacy, um, this, this funding around HIV. The, the most amount of money for a, uh, a single virus, um, it is historic. Um, it also required bipartisan congressional leadership, <clears throat> something we'll have to work on with this um, new election day as it, as it um, came about a couple days ago. Um, and it took the left and it took the right um, to come together under the Bush administration to say, you know what, this is not about the left, it's not about the right, it's a moral issue and we all should take a step forward. And we could tell um, funny stories about <clears throat> the left left and the right right not really wanting to meet, but they did anyway and um, folks, key folks like Bono brought them together in the same room and, and we all kind of came up uh, with a deal together to move forward on behalf of the world's poorest. 
Um, it took broad-based coalitions of support. It took um, lots of uh, nonprofit organizations, coalitions, um, groups coming together and saying all of our all of our organizations together provide a united front that we do want to um, uh, move forward in global health with legislation and funding. <clears throat> it took international cooperation. It took celebrity involvement, um, which was Hollywood and Christian music artists and um, uh, other artists, other um, you know musicians. It, it took kind of um, the faces of the of celebrities to kind of give it a pizzazz and and really kind of bring interest to the grassroots movement um, over those years. It took innovation and private sector cooperation and um, results, results, results. So we were, for, the, for 10 years, really pressing Congress with this strategy to move forward and keep robust spending around HIV-AIDS, around poverty, around development assistance, um, around malaria, around walk, clean water, um, so that we, we um, were sustaining and increasing uh, funding, again, um, around global health issues and global development. <clears throat> Some of those mechanisms we were pushing for uh, were PEPFAR, I mentioned that, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, not many people know about, but it provides infrastructure for global health, uh, building roads, strengthening clinics, um, providing um, uh, water systems, this kind of thing in country, um, President's Malaria Initiative, uh, Obama's Glo Global Health Initiative, and then the Senator Paul Simon Water for the Poor Act. And these are just some pieces of legislation we were pushing and advocating for over the last decade. And I say all that to come together to this. So um, Hope Through Healing Hands, about two years ago, was approached by um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to partner with them um, around what was Melinda's commitment for the next 10 years, and that was on healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. But to move forward on this issue, and her narrative is that um, in going to these countries and hearing these women and the spectrum of their issues as mothers, um, she kept hearing over and over again, how can I better time my children? How can I space my children? How can I choose when to have my next child? You know, here are three children. I'm pregnant with my fourth. I can't feed this child. You know, how am I going to do this? And how can I get access to the knowledge, the information, and, frankly, contraceptives to, to do this? And she was hearing this in Bangladesh and India and all across Africa. And she um, comes from a very Catholic background. She's from Dallas. Um, she's a devout Catholic. She goes to Mass every week. She's raised her children um, in the Catholic Church. And um, this was a difficult for her because, of course, the Catholic Church um, adheres to natural family planning or fertility awareness. Um, which is um, an excellent method for some women, but not all. And how is she going to take this up? So she went to the church, she went to her parents, she went to her family and said, I'm, I'm not the natural spokesperson for this, but I really feel compelled that it is a moral issue and somebody needs to stand up for these women and talk about this again and bring this dialogue to the fore. And if I have to do it, I'm going to do it. And um, so she came to Senator Frist um, and said, Look, we need a bipartisan effort for this. We were talking about bipartisan congressional 
Um, you know, it can't just be the left coming in here talking about healthy timing and spacing of pregnancy and women's health. We need the right to come in as well. It needs to be united front. It is a moral issue. How can we recreate language to talk about this? How can we get at the crux of this healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies? So um, we partner with them to create a faith-based coalition for healthy mothers and children worldwide. And this really is a, a safe space to come in and talk about the facts of maternal and child health and healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies and welcome influencers um, to um, bring to bear right now on this um, a bit malleable coalition, um, but to share their leadership and interest and support and um, move um, in, in creating kind of a momentum around the issue of mothers and children and women's health. So the key components of this faith-based coalition that we're putting together for them <clears throat> is to promote awareness and advocacy for maternal, newborn, and child health writ large. So the framework of that, um, many of you probably are, are familiar with that, and we'll kind of go into detail a little bit more about that. And then the slice of that, which is this healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. So um, we want to encourage faith leaders um, across the U.S. And when I think of faith leaders, I think of pastors, but I also think of Christian music artists. And I think about nonprofit leaders. And I think about speakers like Tony Campolo or Franklin Graham. I think about authors like Max Lucado. I think about uh, university leaders. So that spectrum of leaders who have constituencies, who have groups of people listening to them, really kind of educating these leaders and um, bringing this critical issue to bear and engaging their interest and support, <clears throat> particularly to combat maternal mortality and increase newborn and child survival rates. So really hitting that one-two punch, infant mortality and maternal mortality, and framing it that way. And then galvanize leaders to share their interests with policymakers to enhance understanding and encourage stronger support for foreign assistance uh, for in for maternal, newborn, and child health and healthy timing and spacing pregnancy. So then the advocacy, which is going to Washington or going to your congressional representative, going to your senator and saying, you know what, I know you care about children in the world's poorest countries. I care about these children. I care about these mothers. We would love to see you vote on these issues. Um, we'd love for your support on these issues and having that conversation. So that's what it looks like. Um, Kind of taking a step back, um, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll, uh, I think about a year ago, to ask uh, um, Americans what they thought we spent on foreign aid. How much of our U.S. budget actually goes to foreign aid? And over 50% said 28%. Does anybody know actually how much we spend on foreign aid? Besides Mona. Yes? Uh, well, you don't count either, then. <laughs> Does anybody know? Or take a guess. So, yeah, well, it's less than that. It's about two-thirds of one percent. Um, so here's a little piece of the pie. I don't know if y'all can see it, but here's international affairs. It's really just kind of one percent of the whole USG budget. And really, global health, so it's about two-thirds of one percent that goes to um, global development and poverty assistance, and then kind of a slice of that, about a quarter of that goes to um, global health. So we are talking about a fraction of a fraction, a penny to the dollar, less than a penny to the dollar on what we're spending on uh, global health issues. 
And then within that international affairs budget, um, here's our budget for AIDS. We're spending about 50% on HIV AIDS and about 20, 25% on the global fund. I mentioned those two um, funding mechanisms earlier. And then maternal and child health, about 8%. And then family planning here, about 6%. And family planning is another word for healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies, and I'll go into it. When we say family planning, um, we do not include abortion. We do not, uh, that doesn't mean abortion. The Helms Amendment um, actually prohibits uh, by U.S. law uh, for the U.S. to um, conduct abortions in foreign countries with foreign assistance. The U.S. government actually cannot um, perform abortion. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, does not support abortion, um, and they are very open about that by policy. So it's, we're not even really talking, we're not talking about abortion here. <clears throat> we are talking about truly planning families and what that means. But there's an, a, kind of an example of how that money is broken down. So in looking at the framework of maternal, newborn, and child health, one out of 39 women in Africa will die from complications of pregnancy and childbirth. That's a really high number. I mean, you can imagine what that would be like to, or two of us dying right here in this room, um, you know, from, from childbirth. About 287 women die annually from these complications, and of over 99% of them are in developing nations. So it is very slanted um, in terms of who's dying. These women are dying in the poorest nations in the world. Um, And 80% of these are all preventable um, through timely prenatal, postnatal care, skilled attendance uh, during delivery, and then, of course, um, post-care, so the availability of emergency care to deal with complications after the birth. Every year, more than a million children are left motherless, and children who have lost their mothers are up to 10 times more likely um, to die prematurely than those who have not. So you're really talking about hand-in-hand maternal mortality going hand-in-hand with infant mortality. The two are so intertwined, you can't really um, break them apart. And then when we're talking about healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies, we are talking about that slice of the pie, which is really family planning, if you will, Um, You know, there's a spectrum of care for mothers and children. That includes prenatal care and nutrition and immunization of children and postnatal care and all of this. Um, But this is the slice of the pie that deals with healthy timing and spacing. So what do we mean by that? We mean that um, women in developing nations, um, the timing of the pregnancy is crucial for her survival um, and for the survival of the child. So ideally, the, the timing should be between 18 and 34, ages 18 and 34. And if she can have that child and delay that first pregnancy till she's between 20 and 24, she's up to 10 to 14 times more likely to survive um, the, the complications of pregnancy and childbirth. I mean, it's an exponential number. Um, we're also talking about women. I was in Ethiopia in February. Um, where the average age of marriage is 16. So you're talking about young girls who are getting married before 16. We're not talking about um, sex outside of marriage, frankly. We're talking about young married girls who are too young to have children. And how can we delay that first pregnancy for them so that they're not likely to to die in childbirth, frankly? And, of course, they'd be more able to care for their child the older they are. 
Um, older women also with five or more children are one and a half to three times more likely to die, kind of on the other end. And then when we talk about spacing of pregnancies, we're talking about spacing those pregnancies every three years apart. So you're not having that child nine months, nine months, nine months, nine months. You're going to have the child in three years. And in that three years, the mother can spend time with that one child, providing the physical needs it needs, the breastfeeding, the cognitive needs, the social needs, the spiritual needs, everything that the child needs for emotional, um, mental, physical development um, for its own health. And when that, um, when that three years of spacing occurs, the child is um, twice as likely to survive the newborn stage. Twice. So again, you're hitting on infant mortality issues. So Senator Frist and I wrote a piece in Time magazine back in March, I think, or maybe April, um, called Contraception is a Pro-Life Cause in the Developing World. And um, it was kind of our our coming out that we were going to take up these issues around um, family planning, frankly, um, on these. And, you know, the the facts are these, that there's over 220 million around the world who say they want to avoid their next pregnancy and don't have the education or tools to do that. Um, And there's been a group of people, a group of organizations and countries who have come together called the FP2020, or Family Planning 2020, that came together two years ago um, alongside the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, kind of a coalition. And they all decided to address 120 million women of the 220 million women over the next few years to 2020. And they wanted to have 120 more million more women to have um, access to contraceptives or the tools or the education they needed to um, time and space their pregnancies. Um, so we decided to come alongside them to do that. So I, I mentioned a, a minute ago what is family planning, you know, what is healthy timing and spacing. And uh, we do mean enabling women and couples to determine the number and timing of pregnancies, including the voluntary use of methods for preventing pregnancy, not including abortion, um, that are harmonious with their values and religious beliefs and with their partner's uh, values and religious beliefs. So it's important to us to um, put this in print. You know, it's on our website. It's on our literature. We're not supporting abortion here. Um, And we do want the woman to have um, her choice of methods, whether it be natural family planning or fertility awareness, to the spectrum of other methods available um, to time and space her pregnancies. So um, the the health benefits are known, and this is kind of the crux. You know, we feel like healthy birth timing Healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies kind of is at the crux of family planning. It is the definition of family planning. So why healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies? We um, really believe it's at the nexus of other global health issues. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Millennium Development Goals um, that have been around for quite some time. But if you think about the ramifications of healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies, it really gets at the other Millennium Development Goals. Um, for instance, if the mother can um, better time and space her children and have two children and not five children, she really is um, more able to combat extreme poverty, which is Millennium Development Goal number one um, for herself and her family. 
Um, number two, um, it promotes gender equality. She's able to make these choices for herself and her family and being a viable um, a decision maker in that. Um, uh, you can keep kids in school. She may be able to afford the two children to go to school, but not five. Um, she herself may able, be able to stay in school because she's delaying that pregnancy post high school so she can finish her own degrees and be better equipped for her, um, her own stable families um, and stable financial future. So um, education, it's about improving child health, improving maternal health, um, and uh, preventing mother-to-infant transmission of HIV. So it, it combats H, um, infectious disease as well. So it gets on that whole circle of Millennium Development Goals just by addressing this one critical global health issue. <clears throat> so um, it does save lives. Um, I talked about combating extreme poverty. Uh, it would avert 32% of all maternal deaths and 10% of childhood deaths. Um, reduction of poverty, and I talked about prevention of mother-to-child um, transmission of HIV. Um, it would reduce abortion. Um, so the numbers are these. If by 2020 we could provide 120 million women with, with health that tools and access to information around healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies, we could avert over 51 million abortions. Um, that's a huge number, and for those who are pro-life and have that as a goal, there's really no better way to reduce abortions than this, really providing women with the education tools and services they need to avoid their next pregnancy. <clears throat> um, education. Um, I mentioned it a moment, moment ago with the Millennium Development Goals. Um, they're able to pursue, young women are able to pursue their own education and provide for their own needs. It's one of the most cost-effective and powerful strategies to empower women and improve their lives. They can stay in school. Their, their children can stay in school. Um, it's really an empowerment issue. An economic issue. Um, for every $1 that the U.S. government spends on family planning, it frees up $6.00 for other governments to spend on um, improving health, housing, water, sanitation, and other public services. So it is really a cost-saving measure to go ahead and invest in healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. And in a minute, I'll look at, I want to look at Ethiopia as a case study here and looking at the um, family unit and what's happened there. When women are able to get access to contraceptives, their GDP per capita doubles. That means their, their household family incomes doubles, which means mom's going back to work, and there's a dual income, and they're able to um, move themselves out of poverty. So Ethiopia, as a case study, um, it's really kind of the poster child for um, healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. Over the last five years, their contraceptive um, prevalence has doubled from 15 to 30%. 30% of all women in Ethiopia now have access to contraceptives or natural family planning of some kind, um, which is a unique situation, and, and they did it so quickly. Um, the highest unmet need is still among that young group, that 15 to 19. And there are, of course, cultural barriers, um, you know, uh, domestic barriers, religious barriers um, that play a role and complicate this, of course, um, in, a, in a variety of different countries. 
and we can talk about that in a, sec in, in a few minutes when we do Q&A. Um, but um, these, this young group still, still has a need. Um, but um, by 2000, for 2013, they were doing the numbers. They estimate that 40% will have access and, um, and are using family planning services. So how did they do it? Well, I don't know how many people have been to Ethiopia or spent time there, but they have a health extension worker system um, there program, and it's a tiered system. It's managed by the government from the top down, and they employ over 38,000 health um, health extension workers in 5,000 health posts um, across the, the country and communities. So they have these little health posts. And here's an example of Marorette here. Um, they don't have any running water. They don't have any electricity, but they have Marorette, and they ha she has a colleague. So there's two of them. They're usually young women, 20s, early 20s, and they've been educated as kind of primary care providers, nurses, if you will. And um, they're delivering antenatal care, family planning, primary health care. So you go into these posts, um, and here's a health center. So they kind of have these posts, and then if you're going to deliver a baby, you can go to the next tier up, which is a health center, and they do have running water and electricity and skilled birthing attendants to really combat maternal mortality and are encouraging those women to go and have the babies in the health center rather than staying at home and chancing death, frankly. Um, so... They were really proud to say by 2013, 95% of all women were seeking services for their deliveries um, in this region, in the Tigray region. And here's an example. But here's some pictures in the health post where there was no running water. They had access to a variety of different um, contraceptions uh, available and, of course, the counseling that went with that. Um, so it was made available. They were not out of stock or anything, and um, these... Women were mobile, so they were going out into the village and where um, they knew one woman perhaps hadn't had her uh, a depot injectable shot, and it was coming up on the three-month mark. They were going out and say, hey, are you ready for another shot, or do you want to get pregnant? Like, are you wanting to have your next child? And really having that conversation. So they were marking it, keeping records, tracking women, making sure they were remembering to come in and get their um, contraception. So not in the health post. So they weren't skilled enough to do that. They could in the health center, usually after a child was born. But I will say the use of IUDs was very slim. It was a tiny fraction of the population that were choosing IUDs. Most of the women were choosing um, Depot Provera, the injectable shot. Um, but I think mostly because it required a skilled person, a skilled medical person, to actually insert it. By the government. Yeah. I, I don't think it was, they're, they're incentivized in, t in terms of increasing their pay, but they, it was a tiered system where if they, went, you know, they're 22 or something, and by the time they're 24, if they wanted to increase their education, they had the opportunity to do that, to climb that healthcare ladder, if you will, to become a nurse to become whatever the next step is, uh, ultimately to be a doctor or whatever, and the education was there. They could, however, um, do um, an implant. These, they, they had enough skill to do that, but they couldn't remove it. You would have to go to the health center to have it removed by a doctor. And the, the implant was lasting up to three years. And then um, the next photo, they were trying this new implant that was going to last up to five years, Jadel. So um, that was an option. 
But, of course, with cultural and religious barriers, sometimes that's not what a woman would choose because you could see it, and it was better for it to be invisible sometimes um, where the men might um, have not wanted their wives um, to have any access to contraceptives. So looking at that economically, um, these are just kind of the the stats and the numbers here to showcase again where they doubled in contraception for 15 to 30. They doubled in GDP per capita. So um, we were there. We were able to meet with the prime minister's wife, the first lady, Roman Tesfaye, and she was so excited and so proud of this improvement across Ethiopia as really kind of a leading um, health initiative but also development and poverty initiative as well. And the point being that she was hoping Ethiopia was moving to be a sustainable country, moving out of poverty. And this was one critical and key component to do that, empowering these women. So um, Family Planning 2020, I mentioned them earlier, the coalition of countries, including Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others that have come together to say, okay, we kind of want to all pull our resources here and do something about this. They just came out with their progress report this week. Um, and actually, we, Senator Frist just um, authored a piece in Roll Call paper, which is a D.C. paper on this, um, on this progress report. So I, these are kind of hot off the press. But in 2013, they noted that more than 8.5 million additional women and girls had access to contraceptives compared to 2012 across 69 of the world's poorest countries. So really they are making strides towards this 2020 goal of reaching 120 million women. Um, access to contraceptives averted an estimated 7 million, 77 million unintended pregnancies. Think about that, 77 million. And the lives of more than 125,000 women and girls were saved from complications related to um, unintended pregnancies. So some of this is estimation, but um, based on good data. So I kind of wanted to leave with a quote. Um, When a woman contributes to her family, she contributes to her nation. And that's um, the First Lady of Ethiopia. Um, Just in that, when she's able to contribute to her family, the whole nation improves in the sense that her community is able to improve and create a more stable community, her society, her region, and her nation. So, um, questions. What can we do? Kind of the next steps. What can you do from where you are, from where you sit? Um, one, pray. So um, I love this little prayer. Um, Melinda, came, Melinda Gates came to Nashville, Tennessee, and spoke at Belmont University, which is a, um, a, 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 Bab- a formerly Baptist um, university, to about 300 uh, faith leaders and uh, community leaders across Nashville earlier this year with Senator Frist. And um, in doing so, met Amy Grant, and Amy Grant was able to interview um, Melinda that day as well and really just kind of bring in together the Christian music artists and the various denominations and whatnot that Nashville is kind of a faith hub. And um, in doing so, Amy led us in a prayer, um, and she said, Lord, lead me to the ones I need and to the one who's needing me. And I thought it was a really good and simple prayer about... um, Asking God to lead us to um, to the ones who need us and to the ones for Him we need as well. And it's one of her songs on her latest album as well. 
um, to raise awareness. Um, talk about this on Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, highlight um, articles. <clears throat> um, really just begin this conversation. Um, really what we're out there doing is opening the dialogue, creating new language, a new rhetoric, a new framework to talk about family planning, talk about healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. Um, blog, write about the importance of maternal and child health in developing nations. Um, some of you may have blogs as, as you've gone on medical missions and written about your time overseas and done work there. Include this um, component about maternal and child health in the spectrum of issues as a very critical next critical issue. Consider writing an op-ed for your hometown newspaper, um, and we are happy to help you do that as well. I'm happy to help lay the framework for that, um, co-author with you and the like. Really just, again, continue to spread grassroots awareness for this. Um, Sunday school. Lead a class at your church on these issues. So I'm hoping if we can get my computer to actually work. I have a little two-minute spiel on this from Senator Frist, um, and I didn't mention, we have also partnered with Zondervan Publishing Company, um, and we're going to do a book called The Mother and Child Project, Raising Our Voices for Health and Hope, and it's a compendium of essays of about 46 different authors, mostly evangelical, most of whom you probably have heard of or know, and some are more fluff pieces from Amy Grant, who's written kind of a poem, and Michael W. Smith contributed a piece based on his travels overseas. But then we have some headier pieces, academic pieces, policy pieces, pieces from pol political folks, um, pieces from artists, actors, kind of a spectrum, all focused on this one thing, healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies. Alongside with that, we're going to do a curriculum, a four-week curriculum with a church. So you could do it, use it in a book club, you could use it in a Sunday school, and really kind of do a deep dive on these issues, the facts, and thinking about what you and your church could do on these issues. <clears throat> and then speak up, advocate. Um, write and call your congressional representative. Um, tell them you care about these issues. Tell them you want them to care about these issues in developing nations. Ask them if they've ever traveled overseas. Ask them if they would travel overseas. You know, maybe they should go with you on a medical missions trip and see some of these issues in action. Um, you can go to house.gov, senate.gov, find your representative or senator, make a phone call, send them an email. I promise you it makes a difference. Senator Frist, who was the majority leader, sat on stage with Melinda um, at Belmont, and he was like, I'll, get, I'll tell you a little secret, even as the majority leader. If over 300 people, about 200 to 300 people, write in and comment on an issue, it comes even up to the majority leader. I mean, it kind of, it, it makes itself up. And these calls don't go unheard. They do go, they, they are counted, they are collected, and they are brought forth um, to your representatives. So every voice counts. And then to learn more, um, just go to hopethroughhealinghands.org. We have a whole section on our website um, on the Faith-Based Coalition for Healthy Mothers and Children Worldwide. Um, we have endorsements, about 30 different endorse endorsements from um, some prominent um, <clears throat> faith leaders across the U.S. Uh, we have our declaration and commitment. We have all the information about these issues, the facts, um, and resources for that as well. So why don't we open open it up to Q and A, some questions for a few minutes, and maybe I can get the maybe I can get Firefox to work. Sure. I was just curious with the example of Ethiopia. Yeah. Is that something that was 
Right. So um, USAID and other governments actually do provide funding for their initiative under family planning, but it was certainly mandated, managed, and um, carried out by their government and, and their organization. But, yes, we are part of funding that initiative. <clears throat> sure, way in the back. Oh, what is that? Oh, ten minutes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. How do you address that? Well, I mean, I think it, so. So yes, so Central America is, is a good example of that. Um, you know, I think this gets back to it should be the woman, the the women's choice within her own community, um, and she should have access to the knowledge about. Have you ever heard of cycle beads or, um, you know, basically? I think that's what we've had to do. And I'm a family planning nurse here in the states. And yeah. I, Right. Uh, doctors and nurses on women's health and, mm-hmm. and physical things, but family planning does come up. And we've used cycle beads, we've talked yeah. about how to use them, uh, natural planning. They do come to us on the slide yeah. for birth control, but if you know they they're you know, they're very quiet about it. If right. you know, if they found out we you know, we stock it then the other people would come down on us. But uh, you know, so it's complicated. Right. Right, and yeah, and the access as well. It, it is a complicated issue in, in each country how it's distributed or are taught, but um, it's not expensive. Right. I mean, no. I mean, I feel like it do more good teaching the proper way to take to get a demo shot because they'll, they'll you can go to the store and buy it for you know a dollar, five dollars. I went and bought some just so I could see what they do when they give it to me. And they said, here, with a vial. And no instructions or anything. Yeah. So it's like to teach them how to use it and to, you know, the... To take the shot. And take yeah. the shot and, and, you know, what you need to do before you ever have one. Things right. Like the education piece. Is yeah, it's so just so not there. Um, yeah, and I think I think things are changing, hopefully, um, on this issue. I should note that the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation... Besides funding um, myself and, and others, um, have funded other faith-based groups um, like the Christian Connection for International Health, World Vision, Catholic Relief Services, Georgetown University's Institute for Reproductive Health, and in those two cases really focusing on fertility awareness programs um, and, the, and the efficacy of that. So, yes.
That's, yeah, that's a, 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 a typical question. Um, so um, it's a huge question. Um, I'll see if my computer will restart or not. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the men obviously are a critical component for sustained and lasting change on this, right? Um, they're, they're an integral part of how this is going to work. Um, I know in Nigeria there's some school for husbands, um, uh, and that has been a successful model. In a variety of countries there's some success, successful models in kind of destigmatizing issues around family planning and involving um, the men, the husbands, as a part. But, you know, it's very complicated, too. You know, in our book, we have a couple of pieces written about domestic violence and what's going on inside of the family sometimes, um, horrific stories on occasion. Um, so that's a delicate issue. I mean, I think kind of getting to the answer quickly right now is addressing the needs for the woman, but it's, it's certainly um, a very important piece for this. We gotta. There, there are a lot of Christian organizations from other countries that are engaging religious leaders who tend to be men because they found, you know, men are part of family. And so if we want to talk about family, then we have to address that. And so we also Anyone else? Yeah. All this is great, and it applies to where we live and work. But um, what I was wondering is where I live and work, women have very large families. and. I don't, what would, what would I be able to say to her about the physical, what, what, even if she's between the age of 18 and 32, is that what you said? Right, 34, yeah. So she's at that age where she's healthy enough, but, I mean, after eight or nine children, and they're working physically hard, difficult lives, what, what does it do to your body physically to have these large families? Well, is there any danger in that? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the stats I said was post-35, if you have over five children, you're one and a half to three times more likely to die in childbirth. Um, so with every pregnancy, you know, is it more difficult than the last? Um, so, I mean, that, and then, of course, it's the ramification of having nine children, you know, in a family and putting food in their mouths and, yes, and combating and I poverty. And I was just wondering, is there any, I'm not a, I'm not a nurse or a doctor, but they do come to me and talk to me about the yeah. economic problems that they're mm -hmm. having. So it, I wondered, is there anything that happened to them physically, having like 12 or 13 children after so much time? Well, I just wouldn't say it's the best, best for their... I mean, I think it just complicates their pregnancy. The chance for complication raises exponentially. So each pregnancy, you know, if you have a short pregnancy interval, Yeah, those are very succinct. Anyone else? One last one. Yeah, I don't know what time it is. Are we close? Yes. 
one of the clinics, the variety, and you may have seen that photo, like they went down the line, here's your five different methods of choice, and here's what each of them does. Um, what do you think? What would you like? What's best for you and your family? Um, so uh, I think it just depends on the family. It gets into, it, it can get complicated on, the, um, on a variety of different levels to talk about all of this. And the bulk of your questions have been on the implementation of this, right? Like, how is this going to be manifested? And, um, you know, frankly, I'm not a um, – oh, good. Hold on. Can, do we have time for this little, this little clip? Frankly, I'm not an expert on the implementation. What I am an expert is on the advocacy and awareness inside the U.S. so that we can increase governmental funding for family planning in the U.S. for these women overseas. So I would invite you to be a part of that. Um, as we move forward. I'm going to show this one little clip, and then y'all can go. We'll close with this. Can y'all hear? Maternal mortality claims the lives of hundreds of thousands each year. And while we've cut infant mortality and have since 1990, that last mile to improve child health can be achieved by simply spacing pregnancies just three years apart. But many women don't have access to the resources they need to do this. We are promoting awareness for these crucial issues because healthy timing and spacing of pregnancies saves lives. If a mother can delay her first pregnancy until she is at least 18 years old, and if she can then space them three years apart, she is 10 to 14 times more likely to survive pregnancy and childbirth, and her child is twice as likely to survive. When a mother has fewer children, it means she can be healthier, go back to work, send her children to school, and better provide financial stability for her family. This is why maternal health is at the core of all global health and development issues. By equipping and empowering women, we will combat extreme poverty promote gender equality, keep girls and children in school, and prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV-AIDS. The Mother and Child Project is a collection of essays from artists and actors, nurses and doctors, policymakers and pastors on why we should raise our voices for health and hope for women and children around the world. Kay Warren, Amy Grant, Tony Campolo, and Jennifer Nettles are just a few authors who have contributed to this book. We are building a faith-based coalition for healthy mothers and children worldwide. A movement of faith leaders like you who will take a stand for mothers, children, and families around the world so that they can have access to the education and services they need to save lives. Fifteen years ago, people of faith were at the helm of turning the tide of AIDS in Africa. Today, will you join us to take a stand for maternal and 
Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And I'll be available for questions afterwards.